Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Callum McDonald, but thankfully for you, in what can only be described as a Christmas miracle, you're not actually hearing a lot from me today. Merry Christmas to you. You are welcome. This is a special episode of Stories of Our Times. I'm handing over to Times and Sunday Times correspondents all around the globe for a little look into the holiday season the world over. Now, it might not be quite the return to normality that we'd been hoping for for months and indeed the best part of two years, but we are trying to make the best of it for you. So, you will hear about our correspondents' trials, tribulations, their major stories of the year, and of course, Christmas, just to get you in the mood. You are listening to Stories of Our Times, from The Times and The Sunday Times. Today, Christmas dispatches from around the world. This is Oliver Moody, the Berlin correspondent for The Times and The Sunday Times. As the title suggests, I live in Germany, but I also write about Scandinavia and Central and Eastern Europe. This is my fourth Christmas in Germany, and I imagine most of the Christmas traditions here will be pretty familiar to Britons, for the simple reason that we nicked so many of them off the Germans. There's a bit of a myth that it's all down to Victoria and Albert. Actually, a lot of it already came over in the 18th century with the Georges and sort of percolated down through society over the decades. The Christmas tree, the mulled wine, the advent calendar, and even quite a few of the canonical carols. My favorite example is tinsel, which was supposedly invented in Nuremberg in the early 17th century to mimic the ice on the trees outside. And it used to be made from extremely thin strips of real silver. That said, There are a few German Christmas idiosyncrasies that never quite caught on in Britain. Probably the weirdest one comes from parts of the Alpine region, where people still dress up as the Krampus, a kind of gruffalo-like mountain demon with horns and terrible eyes, and march through the streets scaring the children. Sometimes the uh, Krampuses have been known to get a bit carried away and thwack people in the crowds with their sticks. Germans usually celebrate Christmas on the evening of December the 24th. What you eat depends a lot on which part of Germany you come from and on your family traditions. It might be white fish, goose, dumpling soup, raclette or roast beef. But last year, a survey found the most popular meal was frankfurter sausages with potato salad. Preparing the food can be pretty labour-intensive. I once made a Swabian Christmas dinner for my parents-in-law 
with venison steaks and was in the kitchen for seven hours. The winters here are generally fairly cold by British standards. As I'm recording this, there's about half an inch of snow on the tree outside my window. And there's quite a reasonable chance we'll get a white Christmas. Last winter, the temperatures got down to about minus 16 at the lowest. We've had coronavirus restrictions in place here in one form or another all year. During the last winter, we've been living for about nine months with a sort of COVID passport system where you have to show a vaccination certificate or proof of a recent infection or a negative test result to get into most places. And I'd say, on the whole, it's been fairly uncontroversial compared to the debate about this kind of thing in the UK. We've also got very much used to wearing face masks on buses and trains and in shops. And when you're walking around in most indoor public spaces, that's been the rule in virtually the entirety of Germany all year. Right now, we're in the middle of the fourth wave, but the restrictions are quite gentle at the moment if you've been fully vaccinated. The only really absurd one is that you can still go to nightclubs in Berlin, but you're not allowed to dance, which would be a small mercy in my case if I ever had the time to go out clubbing. It's been quite a colourful year on the work front. I've been to Utrecht in the Netherlands to write about its cycling infrastructure, to Aarhus in Denmark to write about the country's so-called immigrant ghettos, to a nuclear fusion reactor in Greifswald on the Baltic coast of Germany, which is essentially a tiny replica of what happens on the inside of a star. And next week, I'm off to Vilnius in Lithuania to cover the government standoff with China. But three stories stand out. The first one was actually a mini-series I did for the Stories of Our Times podcast in the spring about the attempts to denazify Germany after the Second World War and how many influential figures from the Third Reich slipped through the net and regained a lot of their old power in the new West German democracy. The series is called The Spider in the Web and, well, I'm biased, but I thought some of the things in it were jaw-dropping. The second was the devastating Rhineland floods in July, where entire villages were flattened, nearly 200 people died, and something like 300 miles of railway track were swept away. Walking through one of the affected towns in the aftermath, seeing all of these cars that had been tossed over on top of each other and talking to the people salvaging the remnants of their lives from the mud was extraordinary. And I then found out that a scientific network had delivered fairly detailed flood warnings to the German authorities four days beforehand, but the authorities had failed to properly alert the population or draw up evacuation plans that could have saved many of the people who died. And the third story was, of course, the German federal election in September, the end of the 16-year reign of Angela Merkel, the country's second-longest-serving post-war chancellor, and the truly remarkable comeback of the Social Democrats under Olaf Scholz, the new chancellor, who's been completely written off only a few months earlier. It was one of the most exciting and unpredictable campaigns in living memory, and it's a privilege to be reporting on this threshold moment in German history, where there's a new kind of three-party government with some very bold ambitions to reform society and modernise the country, but also some very big divisions over what to do. But that's all in the future. So for now, I'd like to wish Stories of Our Times listeners Fröhliche Weihnachten und guten Rutsch. A Merry Christmas and a good slide into the new year.
My name is Sarah Baxter. I write for the Sunday Times about America. I'm based in Pennsylvania. I've been there for just over a year, but I run backwards and forwards to New York and to Washington, D.C. a lot. So the Christmas holiday season in Pennsylvania is pretty interesting. There are more ho-ho-ho houses in my area than you can shake a stick at, but also, dotted among them, plenty of yard signs up that say things like, don't blame me, I voted for Trump. And there are still even Trump 2020 signs in the yard and just one Biden sign looming there, very lonely, that has been there for a while, always unaccompanied. So that's the state of play in my corner of Pennsylvania. How do people celebrate? Well, very much like people in Britain, they have their Christmas trees and they have gifts. But there is an old Pennsylvania Dutch tradition related to the Amish in which you turn a Christmas tree upside down and decorate it that way. Now, no one's quite sure where this tradition arose, but it could be to stop mice and other unwanted creatures from nibbling at your lovely treats that you hang on your tree. So there are a few stories that I reported this year that have really stuck with me. One of them was actually attending the inauguration of Joe Biden. That was back on the 20th of January. I was um, in Washington for that. The Capitol building and the White House was totally hemmed in by barbed wire. There were National Guard everywhere. And of course, it was only a few weeks after the storming of the Capitol. I had been present at the inauguration of Barack Obama in 2008 as Washington correspondent for the Sunday Times. And that was an extraordinary scene of hundreds of thousands of people on the mall all celebrating. This was very much a somber affair and it's really stuck in my mind. There's another story that also stuck in my mind that was wandering around the banks of the Rio Grande early on in the um, immigration crisis on the border with Mexico. And I really wasn't sure that I was going to find any migrants trying to cross the river because, you know, it was all pretty new. The crossings weren't wholly established. And I'd gone to this fly-blown town called Roma, very underpopulated. Wasn't sure what I'd find. And then, sure enough, after dusk, and I was pretty much the only person there, and then suddenly Texas Rangers and National Guard arrived just as the sun was setting, and I began to see people cross. Within the space of an hour, over 150 people had crossed that little slice of the river. And I thought to myself, boy, if this keeps up, Joe Biden's going to have a big problem. And if you asked the migrants why they were coming to America, they would cheerfully say things like, Joe Biden said we could come. So here was a huge political problem in the making and it doesn't surprise me to find out that the border guard have actually stopped two million people on the American side of the border. When I say stopped, I mean taken down their names and given them a bit of shelter for a night or two and sent them on with dates to return later. They have deported quite a few, but a lot of people have stayed in America and this has been really roiling the political situation here. What impact has COVID had on my state of Pennsylvania? Not that much, frankly. I wish a few more people around me did wear masks. I'm often the lone person in the gas station wearing one. It's very much a sort of blue state, red state thing. And Pennsylvania being a swing state 
is divided. So if you go into the towns and cities, you see everybody, you know, dutifully obeying all COVID restrictions. If you go into the rural areas, you see nobody obeying them. And they're often declaring themselves to be proud deplorables. So it's a tale of divided America right there in my home state. Finally, what was the highlight of 2021 for me? Well, it wasn't exactly a highlight, but it's just something I did very recently. And it was a almost out-of-body surreal experience. Going to a Ladies Who Lunch Christmas affair at the venerable Sherry Netherland Hotel in Manhattan on the Upper East Side. It was at the Doubles Club, decorated to the hilt in flush red Christmas lights, a giant rocking horse, gifts, endless. I mean, nobody does Christmas like New York. And this was a really crazy scene. So this was an amazing New York Christmas tradition. I think every lady there had had an awful lot of, um, they looked wonderful, but they'd had an awful lot of work done, shall we say. I think I was probably the only person there without a lifted face. But there you go. It was a once in a lifetime unique experience. I don't know that I'd go again, but I thoroughly enjoyed myself. We'll be back with our whistle-stop tour of the world after this. I'm Emma Tucker, editor of the Sunday Times. It's thanks to listeners like you that we're able to provide journalism that matters. Get to the heart of the story every day with the Times and the Sunday Times. Subscribe today and enjoy one month free. Visit thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm David Baddiel. I'm a writer and a comedian and a Jew. I'm Saeeda Varsi. I'm a businesswoman and a politician and a Muslim. Jews and Muslims always seem to be in the news or on the news. Lots of people talk about us, and this is us talking about ourselves. The kind of things that people say don't touch, we are going to go there. I mean, I think Jews and Muslims are talking about these things, but I think they're not talking about them together because they're worried that if they do, sparks might fly. A Muslim and a Jew, go there. Find us wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, my name is Louise Callahan. I'm the Middle East correspondent for the Sunday Times. For the last six years, I've been based in Turkey, in Istanbul. And I'm recording this as I like to record all of my radio spots sitting underneath a duvet in a hotel room in Sarajevo. Such is the overwhelming glamour of the life of a correspondent. The overwhelming majority of Turks identify as Muslim. For them, celebrating a Christian holiday is just not something that would be done. However, as we know all too well in the UK, even if you don't believe that Jesus was born on Christmas Day, 
You can still love Christmas traditions and you can like getting together with your family and having a Christmas tree and lighting lots of candles, buying each other presents and things like that. But the question for a lot of people in Turkey is obviously, okay, well, how do we do that while not appearing to be celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ? So some very practical people, I've no idea who, came up with a workaround, which is pretty much that everything that we associate with Christmas, whether that's Santa, whether that's Christmas trees, anything like that, has just been uh, rebranded as New Year's decorations and New Year's celebrations. So if you go to the shops around my house on the European side of Istanbul, you'll find them absolutely rammed full of tinsel, there's going to be Christmas lights hanging up, there's going to be Christmas trees, except for that, instead of saying the signs everywhere saying Happy Christmas, they're saying Happy New Year. I mean, you've just got to give it to them. It's an elegant solution. And Istanbul really, really is a city that lends itself to Christmas or New Year's or whatever you want to call it. And of course, there are Christians living in Turkey, Greeks, Assyrians, Armenians. They have this very vibrant community where they celebrate Christmas. And all over the Middle East, there are, you know, there, there are Christian communities. Particularly, I love Christmas in, in Erbil, in the Kurdish region of northern Iraq. They just really, really go full out. I mean, I was never personally aware of how many types of Virgin Mary nightlights there could be until I went to a shop near one of the churches in Erbil. They really, they have a lot of what I can only deem merchandise and their Christmas decorations are just absolutely next level. So because there's constant electricity cuts, I, I remember there was one year where it became the fashion to have these inflatable Santas which were kept up by this constant stream of air that was coming from a ventilator so they'd sort of wave their arms about and nod their heads with their Santa hats on but because the electricity kept cutting the Santas kept collapsing on the floor and then rising again I mean there's probably some kind of metaphor in there somewhere if you look hard enough Amid all the, the kitsch and the bling, there's also a real depth of religious feeling and a real grit and ability to overcome adversity among Iraq's Christians that I, I've seen over the years reporting from Christian regions during the battle against ISIS when I remember going into, into one church and just seeing it completely blackened from the inside and there were the bodies of two ISIS fighters lying in a hole under the floor. And the Christians had been completely, completely pushed from that area. But when ISIS left, they came back and they rebuilt these churches and they, you know, they opened their bars again and started selling booze and slowly and surely have been building their communities back. And it's not there yet by any stretch of the imagination, but the amount of effort that they've gone to and the incredible efforts that they've shown are just amazing. So this year, in March, actually, I went back to Iraq to report on Pope Francis's visit there. And that was just extraordinarily moving. This church that I'd been to, the one that was burnt out with the, with the bodies of the ISIS fighters in it, it had been renovated completely. And people were coming back to worship in this place where Christians have worshipped since biblical times. For the people who lived there, the fact that Pope Francis was coming and talking to them, it meant 
everything. It was, it was hugely important. And even though I'm not personally religious, I was really, really surprised at how moved I was. These people have been forgotten, discriminated against, driven from their homes. And now the Pope was there saying, you're important, I'm listening to you. You have those moments sometimes when you're working as a foreign correspondent, and, and quite often they come at really unexpected times. Quite often in this job, you feel like you're just sort of being thrown around. I, this this year, I must have reported from about 20 countries, maybe. And you just see the most unexpected things come at you. You know, once you think you've understood something, the world will just throw you a completely different set of facts. So, you know, having reported on so many different migration crises and refugee, different types of refugee flows, this year we had President Alexander Lukashenko of Belarus essentially manufacture his own version of a migrant crisis where refugees and migrants from Iraq and Syria basically were invited to come and try and get to the EU via Belarus. So in a forest in Lithuania, of all places, I talked to this young Yazidi woman who told me she'd never even heard of Belarus before she got on a plane there. And and now she was trying to join her family in Germany. At another time, in the middle of what was quite a slow news week, then a huge ship just jammed the Suez Canal. A very slight shift in the winds or maybe a minor pilot error or who knows, someone coughed at the wrong time and hundreds of millions of dollars are lost. World trades essentially paused on that route. I mean, who had that on their 2021 bingo card? That's the thing with this job. You just never know what to expect. Often, however much you try and understand things, they just make absolutely no sense at times. So the best thing you can try and do as a foreign correspondent is just try and listen to what people say and hang on as the big roundabout of news swings around. This is Tom Kington, the Times correspondent in Rome, where it's currently nice and cold, which adds to the Christmas spirit after a year that never really got in gear thanks to the buffeting waves of COVID, which dominated the news and turned virologists into TV chat show stars. As I set up the Christmas tree, I had a distinct feeling it was was only about six months since I last did it. And I think that was a sign, surely, of how rushed and nervy 2021 was here in Italy, how the year never really took off, how we continued to hold our breath, waiting for the pandemic to be over. Italians did try hard to beat it, obeying mask mandates in a way that Brits never did, and obtaining vaccine passports to get into the workplace, a deal which probably would have horrified many Tory MPs. But here, I think it kept contagion way lower than in the UK. There are also incredible high points in the year, such as Italy winning the European Football Championships beating England in the final at Wembley, with a performance that relied on younger players and excellent teamwork. Both things which are often lacking from Italian football sides, which tend to ignore up-and-coming youth and revolve pretty much around older star players. And I think for many, that team that won at Wembley 
reflected accurately an Italy which this year has come together, has teamed up to fight COVID, a country where demonstrations against restrictions have been fewer and less intense, less violent than in other European countries like France and Germany and Austria. And now we get to Christmas, which Italians will do a good job at celebrating in their distinctive way, which differs notably from the British Christmas, starting with the first big meal, which is usually fish on Christmas Eve, followed by midnight mass for practising Catholics. In my house, thanks to my Neapolitan mother-in-law, we have a festive Naples pudding, struffoli, hundreds of tiny fried dough balls covered in honey. And as of mid-December, we're already tucking into the first of many panettoni, that light raisin-filled cake, which I think now is justifiably supplanting stodgy old Christmas pudding in the UK. Then, on January the 6th, comes the real difference, which is when the Befana, or the Good Witch, arrives on a broom to fill children's stockings with presents, but also, traditionally, a lump of coal for children who've been naughty during the year. Now, where am I going to find a lump of coal? You've been listening to a very festive Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to subscribers, hopefully like you, of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Callum MacDonald. Today we heard from the brilliant Oliver Moody in Berlin, the irreplaceable Sarah Baxter in Pennsylvania, the amazing Louise Callahan in Sarajevo via Istanbul, and Tom Kington in Rome, who elegantly reports from the Italian capital for the Times, the Sunday Times, and for Times Radio and Stories of Our Times as well. We'll have more dispatches from our correspondents around the globe with their hopes and fears for 2022. That's coming in the first week of January. The producer of this episode was Asia Fuchs. The executive producer is Kate Ford. And sound design was by Tom Birchall. From all of us at Stories of Our Times, we wish you a very Merry Christmas, a Happy New Year, and thank you for giving us a really valuable gift, which is your time in listening to these podcasts. Thank you, and see you again soon.